This is Sarah Thibault, host of the SideWoo podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible, from the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the SideWoo. Hello and welcome to episode six of the SideWoo. Um, today I am talking with Katrine Tusson. Wow, I, I don't think I said that right. Tusson. Um, and she is a Danish slash Swiss documentary filmmaker who I met in Iceland while at the Ness Artist Residency. And um, we had a really great conversation, um, a lot about sixth house stuff and, you know, some fifth house stuff. So basically day job and then kind of your creative outlet um, and how those two things, you know, go together or what happens when they don't you know, kind of how you know that a job might be kind of toxic and then how you kind of extract yourself from a bad situation. And then we lighten things up and we talk about the best film of the 1980s, an iconic um, piece of cinematography that you might have heard of called Top Gun. And um, Kat tells us why this is such an important movie in film history. Um, so definitely stick around for that. And then we take a short little quiz that... Um, Tells us which Top Gun character you are, and the answers might surprise you. So please stay tuned. Um, And just a little bit of self-promo. Today is Thursday, and so I am having my opening in Los Angeles for anyone who lives there um, on the 19th, Friday. And it'll start at 7 and go till maybe 9 o'clock. So if you are in Chinatown or want to see some art, you can feel free to stop by there. And then also I am doing tarot readings on um, Zoom or over the phone for people. And you can book um, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour um, on my website, ninaarnett.co. I'm right now just doing standard kind of tarot readings. But if there's anything specific that you want, I am also offering a Wheel of the Year um, reading, which is kind of one card for every month and then like an extra card for kind of what your challenges will be. But I'm also happy to work with whatever your needs may be, you know, focus on a specific theme or a special kind of layout. Anyway, I will leave it there and let's move on with the show. Okay, why are there so many technical issues? <laughs> I don't get it. Because Mercury retrograde, like eclipse weirdness. Oh my God. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday before I did my job into you um my oh, computer yeah. crashed twice which it, it's never crashed before but of course Stop. during the eclipse it was crashing like of course leading up to the job interview. Well, and I like that you had your interview like at the center of the eclipse <laughs> I know, <it> was re- <laughs> just to make it really dramatic it was very dramatic <laughs> but uh I mean it turned out great I got the job so <laughs> yeah that's- oh my god that's so exciting <laughs> so um when do you start first of July like I will have 48 hours at home before from Iceland to when I start. Oh, wow. Yeah, but. So where are you right now? You're in Isafjordr? Yes, I am currently sitting in the town of Isafjordr, which is in the West Fjords of Iceland. It has been storming and snowing. So there's actually snow That's on the mountain crazy. tip, like the around the town. It's really beautiful and also a little frightening because the weather really rolls in from Greenland. 
and just covers everything in a snowstorm. But it's beautiful, um, but also not very friendly to be outside. So sitting here having conversations, nice. Um. Yes, it's a nice <laughs> snowy time activity. Yeah. Um, so the cats just decided to start running around. So if you hear some like pitter patter, that's totally what it is. But are they like closing off the roads where you are? Or? No, it's it's not that bad at all. But it's actually funny that you're mentioning that because I just so the reason why I'm late is because I was down by the University of the Best Fears of Iceland, which I didn't think was a thing, yeah. but it's basically just one floor in like a huge building, <laughs> very oh God, cute. <laughs> and inside that building is um, is the Metrological Institute of Iceland, the Met. Um, and in that part is the Icelandic avalanche warning oh, wow. office. So I just had a conversation with some uh, engineers and scientists there about potentially doing a little short film about how the locals live with um, avalanches in this area because it's you know it's such a huge part of their lives to live with yeah. this immediate danger. And um, then I started talking to this German PhD guy for like an hour and he just wouldn't stop talking, which was really nice. He was such a sweet guy, but he had so much to tell and um which was really cool so yeah and he probably doesn't get an audience very often to like (laughs) talk about his favorite subject (laughs) i don't yeah exactly he's a he calls himself a human geograph which is german for a human geographer um which so yeah he's very niche um, but also very sweet and knows a lot about the area and why people are still living here even though it's so yeah, uh, remote and dangerous. So and you yeah, could ask that about been... like pretty much every place on Iceland. Why are people living mm-hmm. here? <laughs> How did they? Yeah, stay living here. Yeah, he actually uh, spent a lot of time in Skagerstrand, where you and I met <laughs> yes. at the residency, um, and was researching um, after they sold off all their fishing rights to Soda Crocker, the town next over. Yeah, um, why do people keep living there? And yeah. then it uncovered this whole, like, he knew everybody. He knew, like, the mayor and, you know, all, all the characters we've met there, too. So oh, wow. it's it's truly a tiny country. Oh, my God, he knows everyone there. So for those who don't know, Skagerstrand is awesome, but it also is a town with maybe 400 residents um, yeah, total. 450, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So the fact that people know it and know people there is pretty impressive. Although I guess it's kind of like they're both in the same area, more or less. Kind of West Georgian. I mean, he, he said it was super interesting because Skagerstrand was considered extremely conservative because it's got a lot of agriculture uh, oh. industry and the fishing rights have been sold off. So the people left are considered quite conservative. However, because they now left and there is no real industry left in this town, <laughs> right. He's really surprised that they're opening up like an artist residency and there's that they're so open to it. And and it was just really funny. He was like, I guess that's how towns survive. They open up strange artist residencies. It does feel kind of radical, actually, that like this tiny farming village, fishing village turned basically like residential town, like you said, mm-hmm. with no industry has been so open to foreigners from all over the world making weird art projects. I mean, the equivalent to that would be like a small town in like Kansas, (laughs) you know, like having an artist residency. I feel like that's how it happens though in Europe a lot. Like it's always the smallest, most remote, like most conservative towns that end up drawing these artist residencies because it's kind of like affordable or 
maybe they're trying to like jumpstart the industry there and like so there's this weird juxtaposition of like retirees and you know like working class people with these like privileged education educated class like weirdos i um, absolutely agree with you and i could just tell from my own experience from living in switzerland in a small town like oh, that right um <laughs> so not so, to uh, throw shade at your life but <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Um, well, I can also do, uh, say a little bit about my background. I was born in Denmark and then I eventually moved to Switzerland where I married a Swiss man and moved to a tiny, tiny town where in the mountains, um, which is why avalanches also have such an interest yeah. to me. And I now want to dedicate a short film to it. You've lost friends from avalanche. I have, right? yes. Yeah. Um, acquaintances, co-workers from like ski school and stuff. It's super tragic. But what I have to say about that is that the people that I know who have died in an avalanche accident have all done so, they have all taken a calculated risk to go into avalanche prone um, right. areas and then took that risk in order to do their sport or whatever. So it's usually skiers or like, you know, free riders and stuff. Yeah. While here in this town, it's not at all, not at all something you do for fun here. Right. It's really, you Just live daily. up close to these super high mountains that are really, really steep and extremely avalanche prone. And I mean, you don't have a choice. So right. there's definitely a difference in, in, in how people approach like avalanche danger and stuff. And I think that's super interesting how people, you know, here it's like life and death and your mm -hmm. livelihood. And in Switzerland, at least, even though it's super tragic and those are young people that we lost, it's, it's definitely a different motivation yeah. um, why they go into this kind of area. So yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I was going to get to kind of more of your background and um, <laughs> like introduce you a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So um, would you prefer to be called Anna Katrine or are you Kat or how is your? No, no, Kat is fine. Okay. Kat is fine. Yeah. And Thusen, you say Thusen is your last name? Yeah, Tucson. Tucson. With, okay. with a heart T. <laughs> oh, well, it's like Tebow. Yeah, actually. I don't think we've talked about is. that. Oh, that's so cool. We're similar so many ways. Oh, my God. So Kat Tucson is here, and we met, as she said, at the Nats Artist Residency in Skagestrand, Iceland. And you were there for, like, three months? Is that right? Two. 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 Yeah. Um, and then we met in May, and then now in June, you are at a residency for another month and a half or for another month, yeah. In the West Fjord. Fjords, which is like a little south, well, maybe not south, but a little west of where Skagestrand is on the map. Um, the fingers mm -hmm. of Iceland. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. It's definitely the most remote part of Iceland. Holy God, it's so far away yeah. from everything. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. yeah. Well, like even just to get, we went on this like little day trip to get to this, the Ronnie Horn um, Water Museum <gasps> or Water Library. Yes project and it took like maybe like an extra I want to say like two hours each way just to go kind of part way into the West Fjords is that right yeah at least it was so remote that was to the town of Stikisholmur which um I think me and Sarah totally fell in love with yeah. <laughs> we both decided right we were like gonna move we're there gonna it's the cutest town yeah. ever it's like all the little houses have been like kind of placed like just so on Ugh the the town and so like nothing's too close and everything's kind of like 
appropriately situated for like the hills and like the bay and just so cute and painted really nicely. I don't know. And really good fish and chips. Oh, the fish and chips were amazing. However, in order to get to this little pearl of a village, <laughs> you have to drive for 80 kilometers or on two gravel. hours on basically gravel roads. Fuck that. And it was just, yeah, it was. So you're really remote as well. Yeah. Yes. Any, everything's remote in this, yeah. in this country. It's, but Definitely. that's also why we like it. Exactly. And, and also like the idea that, you know, we were there on a Sunday and the only thing that was open <laughs> was basically this fish and chips, like food truck. And then everything yeah. else was closed. Like we couldn't get a coffee. We couldn't get dinner. It was like, this is why the fish and chips truck was there. Yep. For stranded travelers, like the four of us, it was yeah. completely And it was like, away. you know, 30 <laughs> degrees out and, you know, you just eat nope. outside. But anyway. Um, and so like when you were looking at residencies and kind of, so just to preface, like you were kind of transitioning away from a job and um, mm -hmm. we're looking for a residency to kind of like shake up your energy vibes, like kind of how did you land on Iceland? Um, yeah, I was um, I was quitting a, a job um, and I wasn't very happy when I quit the job um, due to reasons we'll get into, I think. Um, and I needed to really get away for me. It was a, almost like a, I was fleeing. I was fleeing my situation. Yeah. Um, I spent the first three months just basically not able to do anything, um, slightly burned out or properly burned out maybe. And for me, I've always done it that way in life that I sort of, I flee forwards, yeah. <laughs> not backward. Like I just go ah, like close my eyes and ram through the wall without looking what's behind it. Oh, I love and that. Um, I just, I've never done a residency before, but I, I realized I needed time and space to just sort of sink into myself a little bit and you know focus without anyone else's judgment on my kind of art or my kind of craft which is uh in my case filmmaking um and also because i just left a really toxic industry behind me you know in film i'm sure that's the same in the states but in switzerland it's such a small little industry and i feel like everybody's watching you know each other very closely what they're doing and i just needed to get away and be anonymous for a little bit and yeah. I settled on Iceland also because of my Danish heritage and my, you know, my Scandinavian heritage. And I just wanted to experience sort of the old Norse. Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe not so fair to say about Iceland, but in, for a Dane, this is really like going back to the cultural roots, at least from where we're from. Yeah. Um, so this has been, yeah, that was definitely my choice uh, or why I chose Iceland. And did you come with like a project or anything? Are you... Um... Yeah, I did. Um, I, I don't think I'll talk too much about it because yeah. it's still in developing stages. That's right. Um, and, you know, talking about projects and developmental stages is, I find really, I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's really difficult because you never know where it might lead to and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was doing a project very vaguely, I can say, on isolation <laughs> and i uh, guess yeah. that works really well in iceland too oh God, um, yes. definitely a lot of uh, isolating places up here so that's been really good yeah cool yeah well um yeah and kind of just to set the stage for like what you were doing at your old job and kind of what you went into filmmaking for your 
specifically interested in documentary filmmaking and yes yeah um do you have kind of like a mission statement when it comes to the kind of work that you like to make um definitely i'm a documentary (laughs) filmmaker at heart and always have been and no matter what i'll do in the future my heart will always belong to documentary filmmaking storytelling whichever simply because i think that truth is almost always more interesting than what any brain can come up with i enjoy fiction film i enjoy fiction storytelling but i think nonfiction and documentary just allows you also as the filmmaker while you're producing the film to meet so many strange (laughs) or fascinating should i say uh parts of the world and people that you wouldn't meet if you were just sitting in an office and this is not to like crap on anyone doing screenplays or fiction but i just think as a filmmaker you're way more exposed to real life and it's up to you as the filmmaker to then frame whatever it is you experience in these four walls of your camera sensor and make sense of what you're experiencing. So for me, it's not just about the end product when it comes to documentary filmmaking. It's really also about the process, which can be frustrating and the project sometimes amass to nothing. And then what have I done? Spend all this time on one subject and then it develops into something else. But it doesn't matter because in documentary, it's really the journey I find so interesting as well. And the final product, I mean, if the film does well, it's great. If it doesn't do well, it's okay. I still had this amazing, frustrating, hard journey behind me that left me with something that I learned from personally. And and I think that's why I'm personally drawn so much to documentary filmmaking. Um, I used to work for Swiss TV, which was a great job, <laughs> by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> Just to preface that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. And, uh, Uh, where I was a a TV documentary filmmaker and I made like TV hour documentary Um, and that was fine you know it was very much geared towards a TV format so it's not that you can take creative uh, liberties as much as in a in a in a strange MFA filmmaking course where you which I then did later, <laughs> uh, where you, I don't know, find strange metaphors and falling leaves or whatever. But, but it was still, it, yeah, that's where I really learned how to love documentary. And also coming from Switzerland or living in Switzerland right now, um, Switzerland is one of the best countries in the world when it comes to documentary filmmaking. They have a very rich history in documentary and they have a very um, solid f- funding system for documentary. I had no um, idea. So, Why is that, do you think? Great question. I guess it's not like the Swiss are. Yeah. Hmm. Why is that? I guess they've just always been extremely strong in terms of public service. So, yeah. like, as in public service television. Oh, okay. um, I guess this is what you call NPR is yeah, your yeah, public yeah. service station in the states, and um, we've had some really big names like uh, Luc Godard and stuff that come from from Switzerland have made amazing documentaries, not just for cinema, like Cinema Varieté or creative documentaries for, for, for cinema release, but for Swiss television, in fact, from the same station where I worked. So there's always been this huge acceptance and, and willingness to view documentary in the Swiss people. Maybe it's got something to do with their direct democracy. Who knows? It's just nice that there's sort of almost a built-in audience in this country. Yeah. <laughs> if you manage to get your idea off the ground and fund it, and all this, of course, that's part of it. But 
definitely Switzerland is one of the the more sympathetic countries towards this strange, 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 strange genre of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's something kind of literal about Swiss people that I've met, and I feel like, mm -hmm. and like they're kind of known for being pragmatic and practical, oh, yeah. and like very like rooted in the material world, and that's not just money, but it is also money. Um, and I feel like what is more literal than a documentary? Not that. <laughs> that's to say you can't be creative, but it just feels like you are completely responding to what is. Um, I don't know. So in some Absolutely. ways, culturally, yeah. I mean, sense. one way is that you respond to what is. Another way is that you, you respond to the context of the documentary as opposed to what the documentary ends up, ends up looking like. For example, oh, in China, documentary obviously is an extremely difficult subject or genre to, oh, to right. produce or make because of the heavy censorship. So Chinese documentary filmmakers, which I encourage everybody to look up, um, have an incredible film language because they can't outright say what it is they're criticizing. They need to find these beautiful metaphors. Um, I obviously forget now that I'm being put on the spot the title of the one film, but there is this one very famous Chinese documentary that takes a look at their absolute overpopulation of their cities, which you cannot say. You can't have this film shown in China this way. But what they do is they instead of showing, saying outright, oh, our cities are polluted, they're overpopulated, la la la, they show these incredible, super strong, but overflooding rivers. That's just one example. Oh, um, so so depending on from what country you are as a documentary filmmaker, your cultural heritage really yeah, shapes your film language. And I think that's also really cool because that shapes your way of not just perceiving reality, but also how you, um, uh, how you, how you give it back onto the screen, how you edit your film. Mm. And yeah, me being both a Dane and now also a Swiss, obviously my films are extremely literal because we don't care <laughs> about any censorship. In fact, we encourage it. So my film language compared to a very poetic, you know, Far East film language is, is very like, you know, dak, dak, dak. It's uh, first we see, you know, establishing shot and then this and then this scientist comes yeah, in yeah, and talks yeah. about this mountain, la, la, la. Yeah, so. Oh, wow. Another... So, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, well, that's good to know. And then, so one of the things that we were going to talk about today is kind of just the, in what this podcast is kind of about, too, is like the nuts and bolts of being a creative person and how that intersects with like the metaphysical and like, um, but also in a practical way, like how it's possible to like navigate the world as a creative and like the challenges inherent in that, but then also um, like the benefits. And I think part of that is just like the day job, you know, and like how you make money in order to fund your life and, um, and how like if you're, I don't know. And so we were going to talk about, you know, you had mentioned that you were in a job that maybe wasn't the best fit for you and how like I've mm -hmm. worked a number of jobs where I've come out of them feeling like just kind of hit by a truck and like emotionally wrecked. And I'm not saying necessarily yeah. that that is your experience, but um, yeah. And, and just partly because it was such a bad fit for me, like I was trying to fit mm -hmm. myself into a mold of what I thought I should be doing to make money. And then, and it did, it was out of necessity for a while, but, um, but also just, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, 
Sorry, I totally lost my thread. No, I think I, but I can pick up on it on the yeah. on the thread. I think it's so important to talk about. Uh, also, as a, you're a painter. I'm a documentary filmmaker. There is no money in documentary filmmaking. Even the most successful ones, the ones that win Oscars, make tons of, you know, tons of money. I say, <laughs> the ones that actually make a good box office and stuff. Right you cannot live off of it or very 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 few people can the networks can maybe live off of having it you know netflix has a whole they call it the documentary and stand-up comedy oh, wow. <laughs> um, section so that's Yikes. where it's like put into so yeah even though some of netflix documentaries they came out with especially the serialized ones and the episodic formatted ones yeah. i thought were brilliant and what the this industry really needed we needed making a murderer to show us that oh documentary can be super interesting and and like and, and thrilling and stuff and, but yeah. still no one makes money off of it which is well, why we need also from what i've uh, heard from interviews and stuff people don't really make that much money off of netflix because the model is that they like buy your film like outright or they yeah. buy your tv show outright for like mm -hmm. maybe a larger you know down payment than you might get at another yeah. network, but then that's it. And so if your film or TV show goes totally viral and streams all over the world, like you don't see another penny from that. No, exactly. It's yeah. it's a bit of a producer's nightmare uh, to have to have your your film bought up by Netflix. It can also be obviously an opportunity, but yeah. you've lost the rights basically. Yeah. So you're not seeing anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy to hear that. Um, but yeah, back to kind of navigating like the working world and I feel like, um, some MFA programs do now have kind of the class where they try to teach you how to be like a productive member of society while still maintaining <laughs> your, your art practice. But, you know, I would say the majority of them don't, and especially undergrad, I feel like barely touched on anything relating to what you're going to do out of school. And so... I immediately left school, like I left grad school, like working at coffee shops because I thought like, okay. well, you know, that's not selling out and I will be flexible and maybe I won't make as much money, but at least I have my like artistic integrity and people won't associate me with like a day job. And that eventually completely backfired and I got so burnt out from doing all that and just made no money. So then I went into more kind of admin work, but, um, mm -hmm. and that can be really good, but it was, it just takes up so much time. And like, you know, I think regardless of where you're at in your career, like working a low level admin job is like not fun for anyone, even if like that's your passion, no. you know? So, um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting that you say that. Do you think that you didn't want to go into saying the corporate world right after your MFA because it was a point of pride like you wanted yeah. to be like no ah interesting yeah I think it was I think it was a total ego thing like mm -hmm. I am gonna do this on my terms and I'm not gonna you know put myself in this other context where and I also yeah I felt like if I had a day job or it might make me seem like a less serious artist um yeah I don't know did you I mean it's really cool that you could actually get a job as a filmmaker. Um, I mean, was, is that kind of normal? 
No, that's definitely not normal. Yeah, I was like, um, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> I think I was lucky in so many ways with my crew, and then also unlucky as we all are. But yeah. um, it's interesting that you said this thing about pride because when I left uh, my MFA, there was also, you know, there was so much pressure on finding a job in the industry. So, so much pressure because yeah. I was afraid of judgment of people going, oh, you take out two years of your life to do this expensive MFA and filmmaking. Yeah. And then you're not going to use it like, you know, because yeah. everything in our society is geared so much towards like, what's the next step that's going to get you to the next step of, of that, you know, that line that you're set on that career path. And so if I were to do an MFA in filmmaking, and then I would go into accounting yeah. to pay my bills, then which is literally which terrible, what I ended a terrible up accountant. Yeah, yeah, people would I would be afraid of people's judgment. And now yeah. I'm kind of, you know, after my experiences, having left an MFA and gone into an industry job, which on paper everything looked amazing no i mean people if you're if you're just getting out of your mfa or if you're stressing out take whatever job you feel comfortable in is my advice and pursue your passion as you see fit because no one is judging you and even if they are so what i mean oh my god oh absolutely my god. no one cares at all nope not even a little bit yeah no. i mean and if they do it's like have them write your rent check yeah <laughs> exactly that was the biggest lesson that I learned after like three years of really working odd jobs and struggling is that like the art world isn't gonna pay my rent the art world isn't gonna like make sure I'm getting self-care time the art world's not gonna take me on a vacation you know and so I was like oh right like I have to do this for myself at the time I was like willing to do whatever it took to just keep my career momentum going. And then when I burned out, I realized like, well, I'm the only one looking out for me and not in a bad way, yeah. but you know, it's just, no, you're the only one who can stop this train. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think like, that's true in any profession, like ultimately, you know, if you do a good job at something, people are going to just want more and more and you kind of have to be the one to hit the brakes or that was also a lesson I've learned now is uh no one is gonna make you quit that toxic job yeah. apart from yourself because people will keep you in the toxic job because they don't care how you feel they they will just continue you know as long as the as long as the shop keeps running you know um well and it's almost yeah, like so. those toxic people like that you work with i feel like need that person to kind of put their shit on um like yeah. you're kind of the scapegoat in the office, especially if I feel like you show vulnerability at some point, like you kind oh of Oh my get God, pegged. yes, that's the worst. Yeah, but so I guess I'm, I'm trying to like ask you questions about your experience without you incriminating yourself or burning any yeah. bridges. Um, <laughs> but I guess like, did you feel prepared when you went into this like more professionalized role that was mm -hmm. your passion, but it was like, you know, kind of working for other people. Like, did you feel prepared to handle like the logistics and the like mundane reality of the workplace within the industry or? Um, I, or like, how did I it, think, how was it different maybe than you expected or were you right. expecting it? I, I mean, I think it was different in the way that I expected because I was promised something else, which I think is a big, is a big uh, is a big part of, of having a toxic work environment that when you're at the job interview everything seems so peachy and outstanding and you are the best candidate we've seen and there's this really sort of 
tenacious, insidious, almost over friendliness that yeah. now when it happens to me, it's like, okay, red flag. That's a really yeah. hard lesson I had to learn. Yeah. You know, nothing is ever so perfect. You're, you're not just going to fly into the perfect job uh, with everything just being, oh, what do you do? And we'll do everything. I mean, maybe that happens to some people. I just know that when it happened to me, it was too good to be true. And then very, very quickly, uh, things started to crack, like in the in the veneer. <laughs> yeah. And things that I didn't realize at first, because you always you walk into these jobs and you're saying, you know, you tell yourself, oh, but I will be different. You know, I, I can do it better than my previous person who was only there for five weeks and they were only there for five weeks because they were they were uh, weak they, they can't handle right, it yeah. or yeah and so you think you're the exception but yeah. really you're really not the exception but you tell yourself because so much is riding on this job because it's in your in your area it's it's in your what you want to do and it's your day job that allows you to do so much next to you know it's it's what you studied for it's what you want to do and then you keep yourself in it so yeah, I was not prepared, <laughs> but now I will forever be prepared because that was a big red flag. And I was part of job interviews in that role later where I witnessed people oh, flipping the from the minute people walked through the door yeah. and sat down to have a job interview. I was like, oh my God, this is what happened here. And these are the exact same phrases that we used in my oh, job interview, wow. like really scary stuff, you know? like. They put on this mask, this role, and 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 people are like, oh, this is so exciting. And 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 but if you really look closely, you're like, hmm, but why is there such a large turnover? Why is but that's things you don't think about when you get lured in. And I use the word lured in because that's what it is. Because they kind of manipulate in. you. Um, mm -hmm. can can you say like some of the things that they kind of promised? Like, and it can be kind of vague, but like what were some hooks that kind of got you right at the beginning that were then like well, not promised? Yeah. Well, this extreme, in the promises, they were very uh, extreme in the way that they would accommodate me in all sorts of ways. Of course we can do this. Of course we can reduce your work hours then and then so that you can uh, do this next to your job. You know, all, the, all these promises that, that would never be kept and that also were never written down. And so that when I refer back to it, uh, it, it, that was never said, you know, that was never said, they say, um, stuff like that, like really just, I had something similar where I had tried to negotiate for more money. Um, and they mm -hmm. were like, you, how about we do that remaining amount that you're trying to get as a bonus at the end of you oh. know, the year or something. And when I revisited that, they completely blew me off like and there i realized there was like no metrics there was no timeline associated with it and i had kind of because the yeah. conversation had gone really well had taken them just on their word you know like when i agreed absolutely because it, yeah. it was even written yeah. down and then you know i realized but there's no like guarantee because it's called a bonus and so it's not mm -hmm. like a signing bonus where if you stay for a certain amount of time, you know, there's just no metrics associated with it. So like, it's impossible to reinforce essentially. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And I can say to that, so this was, yeah, so this, this all, it was empty promises from the start that I still believed in would keep happening because they kept promising it in order for me not to leave. Because when I would bring it up, it's like, oh yeah, but, but look, 
we're not super happy with your work performance. Maybe you need to still learn. Uh, so we don't warrant that this, you know, this 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 doesn't really fit where you are right now in your performance. Blah, blah, blah. Is we're going to push it out until you can, you know, live up to what it is that we crave from you. Wait, it's just an undermining. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm not worthy of whatever it is that was promised to me in the beginning. Right, and it starts As, to chip away at your self-esteem and make you feel like, exactly, oh, I've done something wrong. Exactly, yeah. And that's what I think is so destructive. I wonder yeah. if you could just tell a little history about, um, you know, kind of the short story of how you got the role and what were the early yeah. warning signs and then kind of, how it yeah. slowly devolved into something that you realized was really unhealthy and then ultimately how you found your way out of it. Right. Um, I'll try to be vague. I don't want to out anyone or- And or, we can or, cut it completely. You know. Yeah, um, you... but I'll, I'll, I think it's a good idea. Um, so, I mean, I was done with my MFA in, and, um, and graduated. <laughs> and moved, so I studied my MFA at the University of Edinburgh and uh, when once I finished, I was like, okay, this is going to be the long, hard process of trying to find a job in the industry of filmmaking in Switzerland. Um, it's going to be really tough to find a job there because, I mean, it's a small industry, and yeah, yeah. So I was really set up for like, okay, we're going to looking, we're looking at six, seven, eight, nine months of, of just you know looking because I knew from friends that had also just finished your master's degrees in like you know, masters of science and economics or whatever, you yeah. know, the much more practical, practical master's degrees that they were still looking. I mean, the, the job market for graduates is not an easy one. It's really horrendous. Um, so, excuse me. So um, when I then found a job opening on Facebook uh, oh, amazing. and I emailed them, I mean, I got a response within a day and this is two weeks after I graduated two wow. weeks 14 days amazing and within those 14 days I was in the office and I was doing the interview and everything was so peachy and I was promised to you know build up a whole branch uh and but but I would have to start you know as sort of the administrative person of the whole office and but that wouldn't be forever because that's okay. Uh, you know, you will grow out of it. Probably I can see it in you know, six, six months, maybe a year. And then you will be fully working in not administrative office management or administration any longer, but really in production. Yeah. Um, that was the conversation. Okay. And I mean, as a recent graduate of an MFA with like a little TV experience, a little bit of short film um, experience, this was a dream. It was like, Oh yeah. my God, yes, of course, you know, and I didn't think that my previous, the, 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 the girl I was taking over from, she quit after five weeks. And during the interview, this was told to me, to be fair. And when I then came in, you know, then the contract was sent immediately within 48 hours, I uh, was called all the time about pushed to sign and everything. And I was like, oh, oh wow, wow. I really must love my profile, which is yeah. ridiculous. Totally. No, they just needed someone to pick up the office work that was now not being done anymore. But um, you didn't know. And obviously. so <laughs> it was ridiculous. Oh and God. so, you know, I, I took over. I got schooled for like four or five days by this girl that had only been there for five weeks. So she didn't really know anything either. And then, um, you know, after I had uh, 
spent those five days with her, she left and I was like, okay, here I am. I've never done office administration or, 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 or um, what's it called or management like that ever. Like I've never handled people's bills or anything. I come from a totally different background. I don't, right. I don't have an administrative background, oh my gosh. but I'm going to give it a try because yeah. sometimes you just got to learn it from the bottom and then you go up and, and that's fine. And I was totally willing to do this. And that's when things just started to crack a bit. And I, but I never questioned it because dur during those five days, for example, my, the girl that was training me, she was also like talked to a little bit harshly. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, that's probably because she's not very competent, which today thinking back to how I was thinking about her, I just feel horrendous because right. no, I wasn't the promised girl that could. <laughs> Right, you were the chosen one. Like it Neo was just basically what was yeah. going to happen to me a year later, basically. Wow. So, wow. So yeah. that was and like so the early warning sign. It, yeah, I guess it just that's escalated. a good thing to be aware. Like, if the person training you is miserable and being treated mm -hmm. poorly, like that's because the thing is, is like if someone's really bad, they are going to be fired. Because I had the same like experience, and oh. not to derail you, but I just felt like the same exact thing like oh wow I must be so good and they just mm -hmm. couldn't hack it but it's like well if they were so bad at their job they would have been fired and so they wouldn't even <laughs> be training me you know what I mean and so exactly maybe I should look deeper into that but anyway not to interrupt so so when did no. things start to yeah. like go south like what were some like early like kind uh, of um I mean, I think it was when I started to demand the, the, the promises that I had asked for, like being able to reduce in working hours and being yeah. able to, uh, you know, advance away from purely office administration into what it was, what I was apparently hired for and asking for a higher pay right. as in a pay I could actually live off because the pay was, I mean, it was laughable and I, to this day, I'm just like, oh, this, it's criminal. It's, yeah. it's criminal what's happening. Like, yeah. no one can live off that kind of money. It's just not possible. And maybe this was if in you're, as, yes, yeah. in Switzerland. Okay. And I mean, if you, if you, you know, if you're working next to your semester uh, at a company and you're doing an internship for free, but you're doing your master thesis for it, or you're getting a little bit of compensation. You know, I can kind of understand it's still not cool. No internship should ever be free. And I feel like the future interns of, of the world should all demand a pay. I really yeah. think so. Because well, of course, a company in California to have an. Internship. Oh, really? Yep. You have to either oh. trade an equal amount of credits or mm -hmm. um, pay them like a like the average, the minimum wage. Oh, wow. Which is amazing. That's pretty rare, I think. That's really good. Yeah, because this 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 stuff just can't fly anymore because mm -mm. they will treat you accordingly, I, yeah, think. I think. so. Um, and so, yeah, and that was just not accepted. And I was just really taken aback by the reaction. Like, I'd never seen grown people react this way towards my demands. Like, I, I'm talking like hysterics, oh, wow. uh, like where people were crying and, and yelling and, and, and stuff like that. And then I tried to quit once before in fact a, a year before i actually ended up quitting <laughs> oh, wow. because i was like okay this place is toxic because i mean a lot of the toxic toxicity wasn't exactly directed at me always it was also directed at others 
Um, and I was just like, okay, this, this is not sustainable. Um, and so I tried to quit and then I was, you know, when I, when I put in my resignation the first time, that's when all the promises came true. I got higher pay. I got shorter working hours. I got, um, I got everything. Um, so you basically need from one day to the other. Right. And you needed to like hold them hostage in order to get what you wanted, which I think is its is its own sign of a toxic workplace that you have to I mean, behave so badly to get what yeah. you need. I just wanted to leave, really. Right. I just wanted to get out of there. I thought the office was bonkers. I saw that it wasn't going anywhere, um, and and so I was just like, I'm, I'm leaving. And then I was, and and so because that would then leave the office in a precarious situation because of the office work that you know the administrative work would then not be done. Um, I was then (laughs) promised all these things and I was like, oh, that's a pretty sweet deal. I'll take it. I mean, again, (laughs) why didn't I just see that as that willingness to hand everything over? Right. Why didn't I take that as a red flag? And in the process of being handed everything that I was promised from the beginning, it was also framed as, oh, I've never done this before. You're the first person that would do this for because you are so special. You know, that language is then being used where, and I believed it again. I'm like, oh, I must be so special. I mean, I must be super special if someone is willing to give me everything I'm asking for just to keep me on board. You know, you feel so flattered and at the same time undermined. It's very, very strange. Yeah. And then to fast forward exactly a year later, it had gotten so worse. And I don't want to go into too many details because people will know then. I mean, finally, you can just, just look up my CV, I guess, but still. A year later, it was horrible. I quit. I didn't care about the repercussions. I knew it was going to be hell the last month. We have one month's notice in Switzerland. Okay. A new person was found extremely quickly again, because no doubt this person was then promised so many Literally. things to, and it seemed like such a sweet deal. Right. And then I had to train that person for three weeks. And in that month where she was there, I mean, I was on the daily just being undermined and back talked while I could hear it and just you know all the little imperfections that were just sort of glossed over in the past two years or whatever one and a half years they were like um suddenly huge deals really big deals and right. this is why we can't work with you and oh, da, da, da. like really this was a person who was now hurt in her pride and in her ego because I dared to leave right Um, And this after, I'd like to say, I'm not the only person to leave. I mean, in a span of two or three years, this this place has seen a turnover of like six or seven people. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I left feeling, on the one hand, very proud that I was able to leave, but also extremely upset because I had left a job in the industry, not a very well-paid one, but I was like, okay, it doesn't matter. It's not a good paid industry. I can live with that. That's what I chose. Yeah. Um, I didn't go into tech, you know, <laughs> fine right. uh, or finance, but it was it was heartbreaking because I was like, OK, I, I didn't make it. I, 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 I didn't you know, I, I don't have what it takes. I'm not gritty enough, whatever it was. It was all these things because that's what was basically told to me. And so mm-hmm. I left just feeling shattered, but also happy to be out of just a daily awful stress feeling like crying every Sunday night, 
right. feeling ill when you know, okay, the door's about to open and then shit's about to hit the fan. You know, yeah. all of this was gone from my life, which was wonderful. But at the same time, I just also felt like the biggest failure, even though all of the things that I've talked about so far, I mean, it, it's not sustainable and it's not how you treat fellow human beings. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope, <laughs> I hope that was not vague enough, vague enough. Not oh, I think that's detailed. great. And I think it'll help people, you know, because mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. are a lot of signs. And I think the specialness is something that people should be really aware of. Like, oh, yeah. If you're made to feel, it's kind of like dating where you meet someone and they are just like throwing everything at you, like within like the first or second date. Like, that's a good sign that. Maybe yeah. there's more to the story. And then I feel like workplaces do the same thing. And then they kind of wait until they get their hooks in. And then that's when they start to kind of like slowly tear you down as a way to keep you. It's, yeah. At least in my experience. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as sort of a, a, a counter thing to this, I got hired yesterday today actually in a new job amazing so it's been six months pretty much exactly six months since i quit wow. <laughs> um, did you sign the paperwork and, this morning um no i emailed they so it's very cute they, yesterday we had the last round of interviews which is not a red flag it's a good sign when they have several rounds of interviews definitely with several people involved yes and it was extremely professional there was a lot of professional distance and they had they said if there are there any questions or anything you're worried about la 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 delay it on us now and so yesterday i was like okay give me 24 hours uh, to, to sleep on and they're like okay uh but just so you know we'd be super happy to have you um so if you could let us know, like before Monday, that'd be great. And I'm yeah. like, is that a red flag again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I just kind of have to learn how to trust again, I guess, because in, I mean, part of this job interview was the manager, the, the, the top boss of everything, as well as an HR representative. And it, it was just a, a totally different vibe. I mean, really, really, really nice and different. So, yeah. um, yeah, I just want to I just want to clarify that 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 it can also be different. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's great. Uh, where was I going with this? I forget. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think that's just a nice aside that there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, you know, you yeah. have found love again, mm -hmm. if you will. And you yeah. And you just, you know, I, I know what I was trying to say. It was the whole the whole interview setup. Everything was different. It was um, you know, it was it was several rounds of interviews and it was it was three rounds of interviews, I think, and several appli applicants. And, you know, I got thoroughly checked and um, and it feels good. It feels like I've checked them out. They've checked me out. We vibed during the interview rounds. So it felt it feels healthier. Of course, yeah. I have no way of saying I'm not I'm starting the job next month. But so far, the process feels a lot less icky, like a lot less. Um, oh, but what's what's the what's what's the catch you know because right. we've checked out each other's catches kind of mm. <laughs> we've checked out each other's um yeah potential dark sides and stuff and i know what's coming towards me now while i hope while in the job before i i thought i knew because but yeah i guess we'll see <laughs> we can do this podcast again in six months and i'll let you know exactly yeah. how it goes let's do a follow-up <laughs> and see where you're at and then just send yeah. the episode straight to your employer and be like this is my review of you <laughs> yeah no, i'm just kidding <laughs> exactly yeah um, i just 
I just want to say um, about dreading to go to work, really, I think it's such a good line. It doesn't matter if it's the, the, the actual work you do, because, you know, everyone kind of hates work at some point, even if it's your absolute dream job, you'll have shit days where you're like, oh, I can't handle doing the spreadsheet. I can't handle, you know, right. calculating this budget, whatever. But if you're generally just afraid, and I'm not saying afraid for your life, but it is the yeah. same kind of tight feeling in your like chest because you're scared. Dread. Yeah. Then get out. It's not worth it. Nothing is worth that. Nothing. Totally. I really, nothing. Not even a shit paycheck. Not, and I do feel like it's super scary to leave that, but then you do end up getting something after. Like the universe steps in to kind of replace whatever vacuum you've created by like leaving a job or... I understand also that we might even sound a little bit privileged being able to leave jobs oh, and go into other jobs and yeah. stuff. When the, I'm s we're missing like the physical labor of like an Amazon warehouse, for example. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, it's not nearly that catastrophic, but I still believe a large percentage of the workforce and a large percentage of, of creatives, especially maybe even, might yeah. find themselves in these things and whether or not you drown in like 30 centimeters of puddle water or in 30 meters of depth ocean you're still drowning that's what yeah. i keep saying like, no i agree and i think like emotional kind of trauma from jobs is maybe not as obvious as when you're working a physically demanding job where you're not safe yeah. or you're being pushed exactly physically to your limits yeah. And it's not as it's not respected as much, I think, to say yeah. like people really question like, oh, so are you saying you just had a bad time? Like, no, yeah, guys, exactly. I didn't just have a bad time. I was mentally totally at the bottom, like rock bottom. Yeah. And it's not because there was one big stunt that happened. It was, you know, weekly for years, weekly little chiseling away at your confidence at who you are, at your ego at everything. Mm that leads you to just being half of who you were, I think, yeah. then before you started the job. And I think that's what needs to be talked about. Yeah, Obviously, we're, we are an Amazon workhouse, uh, where, where, warehouse workers, but, but, but I still think this is a huge problem that needs to be addressed and should give, hopefully, people some courage to leave toxic situations if they can. Yeah, like if you recognize yourself in any of these anecdotes. So to switch gears completely, I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about your passion for the film Top Gun. <laughs> and um, if I was wondering if you could tell me, because um, when we were at the residency together for the listeners, Kat would go on these rants about what an important <laughs> film Top Gun is and why like, the cinematography <laughs> is so great and um, how it fits into the art historical canon of pop cultural films. So I was wondering if you could give us like a brief lesson. Are you asking me to tell you and all the listeners why Top Gun is the number one film of its time? Why it's, yes. you know, it's Please. the film of a generation, not just our previous generation, oh but God. our generation. Wow. I mean, where do I even begin? I don't know. We could start with the fact that Tom Cruise was so good looking before yes. he was, I think he was even before uh, Scientology. So he was like an attainable, hot movie star yeah. on the rise. And yeah. then he starred in this amazing film by the artiste film director, uh, Tony Scott, who is an amazing man who unfortunately isn't with us any longer. I think he died of oh, brain yeah. cancer. Okay. 
Um, but <laughs> sorry, back Top Gun from 1986, the ultimate 80s film. Uh, and I call it a film because it's not just a movie. To me, it's just an experience. It's machoism at its worst. And it's cinematography at its most, like, I don't even know. I have no words right now, but it's, it's the, everything about this film is so complete, so solid, so simple and kind of stupid that it works. It's about the best fighter pilots of the country, not fighting another nation in a war, just competing with other douche machos about who's the best pilot. I mean, that's the premise of the film. How simple, how simple can you make it? And I think it's the simplicity that makes it yeah, it's like a yeah. vague notion that Russia is a threat. And I think he does. they do fight the Russians, but it's not in a real fight. It's like in a Cold War fight. <laughs> exactly. Every, you know, in every 80s action film, which I'm a big fan of, but Top Gun reigns supreme. And um, I would say that the Ru Russia or the Red Scare or whatever is always in, in the distance, you know, threatening the American exceptionalism, the, the, the way of the one white straight man and stuff. Um, but in this film, it's really removed. I mean, there is a little bit of uh, like, uh, you know, real life fighting in the end, but essentially the entire film is just about men outshining each other, yeah. both literally and, <laughs> and figuratively. Um, in who's the best pilot and that's it yeah. like it's it's just who it's who's the best at this game we're playing like that and, and like vibing off their physical attractiveness like yes. i think we need to address the volleyball scene which i told you oh when God. you first started going off about this is that in ninth grade that's how old i am we would watch this yes. during study hall and like replay the volleyball scene over and over again no you didn't <laughs> But then now, if you see it, it's like so homoerotic and you're like, how oh, did I ever think that was about I me? Mean, you know, <laughs> that was never about yeah. a woman viewer. No, it was, it's just, it was, I mean, I think it's actually Quentin Tarantino who had this amazing, it's very famous, you can find it on YouTube. He has this amazing theory that it's actually not, you know, the typical straight white American hotshot maverick uh, right, main like character falling in love with the female main character. No, it's actually a love story between Maverick and Ice and Val Kilmer's character, who is just also fantastic in this film. I mean, so over the top. Um, and then he goes on this rant, Quentin Tarantino, he goes on this rant about how uh, Kelly McGillis, who plays the female lead, she can't get Maverick in bed until she actually dresses more male oh, and appears yeah. more male because that's when she finally gets under Tom Cruise's skin or at least his character's skin and that's when they then develop a physical like attraction to each other oh, it's where so they she meets him in the elevator and you know he's rebuffed her advances she's rebuffed his advances and finally she really wants and she puts on it like a flight leather jacket yeah and um like, a, like a cap and puts all her hair underneath yeah and then she appears more male, and that's when Tom Cruise, who's fresh out of the gym and like sweaty, he's like, "Oh, hello," and you know, there's like the first physical sort of uh, ignition between the two, and it's just—I mean, I think there's yeah, there's something about that. It's very homoerotic. Well, but so to be quite serious, it's if pretty I may, radical in a way as a rom-com. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's kind yeah. of in between rom-com and adventure film, but. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a well, wait. I suppose. So, I guess I, I'm not a film student. So would you call it an action film or is it 
is it technically a rom-com? Because I feel like it has romantic. It's an action film. Oh, okay. It's an action film. Okay. There's, I think, so here's the, a little bit of background information that not many people know, but the love scene between Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise, it's just, they're like making out in profile and yeah. it's backlit and yes. it's very artistic yes. <laughs> for its time and the format and the genre we're talking about. Um, the love scene was added as an afterthought after it, they tested the films with test audiences and they were like, mm, we need some more. We need like to really drive it home that these two are now a couple. So this 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 love scene, uh, this lovemaking scene was added after the film was already done. Whoa. So it wasn't even supposed to be in the film. It, it really is kind of random about, actually, now that you say that. Yeah, it is random and it's very strange and it like steps out of the rest of the film. But yeah, it like, has the amazing soundtrack. Because it's, it's pretty close up too, right? Like I feel like this, the yeah, you, cinematography ugh. for that section is like mm -hmm. just totally different. It kind of just is a different it's, point of view and different like framing. Absolutely. It's it's very different and it's um it's also you really see Tom Cruise's tongue. I mean it's not oh, a very really? sexy oh, scene. Damn. <laughs> yeah, you're gross. And I mean of all the 80s action love scenes, which are all terrible, I think that one reigns as one of the more cringy ones, I'd say, simply oh, because you can tell that Tom Cruise is still a young and inexperienced actor and he really doesn't know how to play love scenes. Oh my God, I um, love that. <laughs> um, I had that experience, or like, not that experience. Um, let me reword that. Well, um, go on. <laughs> no, like I was watching um, this really amazing cop show from the 2000s that's Italian mm -hmm. called Inspector Minara. And anyone who has talked to me during the pandemic knows that I'm obsessed with this show. Um, mm -hmm. But the once the there's like a will they won't they moment um, during the first season with the inspector and then his like love interest. And they finally mm -hmm. hook up, and there is so much tongue <laughs> that I totally lost sexual interest in him. And I was, like, throwing up because <laughs> I think it was, like, his first, like, big role. And I was just like, oh, my God, they're, like, actually Frenching. This is so gross. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's in today's... I think in today's fiction scenes with where you have like intimacy coordinators or something. Yeah, exactly. Like, like it's very like choreographed. Fly. Yeah. Yeah, they would be like, I just want to add one last thing why I love Tom Cruise so much. Well, I want um, you to talk about the opening sequence too. Cause exactly. I yes. want to speak about the opening sequence. <laughs> so if those of you who have seen the film, you know, it starts with an epic backlit so shot against the sun scene of uh just uh like what's it called like a flight like the deck of a of a of, of one of those aircraft carriers um and you see all the all the little people that you know run around in their color-coded uniforms because that's how it works you know you're on the green team the yellow team the red team or whatever and then those teams they work in how to start the jet planes from the aircraft carrier so it's 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 all super coordinated and and tony scott he filmed this in such a beautiful way and part of why i love it is because it's technically seen purely documentary the film crew was allowed onto a real life um aircraft carrier and i've actually been looking it up while i'm uh talking and it, they were on and i'm gonna aircraft. play the music with this yeah. session just 
because I feel like that really sets the mood for this conversation. That's amazing. Yes, it's the best soundtrack. The soundtrack, I will literally listen to it when I drive around, when I'm, you know, I have it on my iPhone. I, I listen to the soundtrack very often. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so it was shot on. Um... Well, okay, so why you look that up, I just want to say that during this study hour ninth grade Top Gun binging <laughs> session, my friend Kim Peterson is now a pilot because of this movie. Because she really? was in study hall with me and we would watch this movie and she's like, I'm going to be a pilot just like Kelly McGillis. And oh, she went gosh. on to starting in 10th grade, take college level courses at a local community college. Yes. So that by the time she graduated high school, she could start flying with an instructor, and she ended up like dating her film or her flying instructor, and yes, Kim is now she totally living, yes. working as a pilot. And I'm like, fuck yeah, <laughs> Top Gun totally I, inspired her. I love it. Well done, Kim. Uh, yes. Well done, Sarah's friend Kim. I think that's an amazing story. I too one day would like to do my pilot license if yes. I ever have time. Oh, I see that for you for sure. Yeah. Um, so the opening scene was shot uh, on the USS Enterprise and it shows aircraft from the F 14 squadron, the F 114. Um, Wait, the well USS as Enterprise those... is the name of the Star Trek. <laughs> Ship. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? I love. It. Oh my god, I love it. What? What a strange coincidence! I'm telling you, reality's glitching. Like both regular um, and I believe the next generation. It that's was called the Enterprise. That's yeah, right. I was Starship like, wait a minute. Enterprise. That's I so wonder cute. if that's like a nod to it. So anyway. they shot the majority of um, of those flights of those jet jet fighter planes taking off from this aircraft from the USS Enterprise um, with all the people running around and no one was accommodating this this film crew so there yeah. was no space for them so this very quickly turned into a documentary Amazing. filmmaking experience so they shot what they could get and it was a one-time thing and just like in documentary you're left with what you have and that's what you have to work with in the yeah. editing room the light was awful the film, I believe, even got a little bit of damage. Yeah. And that's what resulted in this epic opening where you have like the top part of the of the of the screen is like a little bit darker or is it vice versa. And you have sort of a split uh color grading almost of 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 the screen. And it's just it looks so epic. And it's one of and I'm not even kidding when I say this, it's one of the most infamous and most famous opening scenes of any film, I think, is yeah. the opening of Top Gun, where they are sending off these jet fighters, they're preparing them, they're lining them up, the music builds up, and then, you know, they get the signal and bam, this plane gets shot off this tiny boat, or tiny boat, it's a huge aircraft carrier, but still, if you think about the mechanism, the engineering that goes into it, and then off goes the guitars, and it's highway to the danger zone and you're in it you're feeling it you are maverick and that's why i love top gun that's why i love the opening just knowing what it must have been like and like all this heat all this smell of gasoline you've got your tiny film crew you have so much riding on you because the studio paramount pictures they paid something like twenty thousand dollars per hour for fuel and like just hourly costs for having these planes fly around. So they really didn't have much time with these. And then this amazing opening comes out of it just because of the magic of documentary. 
Wow. Okay, this is all coming full circle. Um, I totally get it. <laughs> um, okay, well, so on that note, I was wondering if we could do a quiz called Which Top Gun Character Are You? Yes. Okay, I'm here for it. Okay, so we're going to both take this quiz as we go. Um, do you, let me know when you have it open. I have it open. I'll okay, the first awesome. Question. Have okay. you already gone through? No, not yet. Oh, okay. So, first question. You see a real hottie sitting at the bar. What do you do? Do something to get their attention. Make googly eyes in their direction. Walk up and say something. Look my best while pretending not to notice them. Probably just stare at my drink. I'm going to go with look my best while pretending not to notice them, which is something Ice would do. Uh, oh, Val Kilmer's character. So, that yeah, is also what I would do. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Speaking of the bar, what's your go-to drink? Is it beer? Is it mixed drink or cocktail? Is it a shot? Is it wine or champagne? Or is it uh, just a water or soda for me, please? Um, I'd say a beer, which I guess is what Goose would go for, Maverick's oh, co-pilot. Yeah. Amazing that you know that. Um, <laughs> on a usual basis, I would get a glass of wine. Yeah, normally I would go for wine, but I'm currently off of the wagon or on the wagon or whichever. And so I'm getting like soda water and bitters. Ooh, okay. Yeah, but so I guess I will say soda water and just see what that does. I guess that's Kelly McGillis. She actually, I think she actually even says it's just a water because, oh, well, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, wow. When Danger Zone from Kenny Loggins comes on, you can't help but get up and shake my booty, sing or hum, hum along, sway in my seat, Change the station. Why is there no riding down and uh, like a landing zone with on your motorcycle without right. a helmet screaming at the plane? Why is that not an option? <laughs> I know I was gonna say drive faster down a highway with your hair streaming yeah. in the wind. Um, That's what I would do. Uh, what's the equivalent to just getting super hyped? <laughs> I guess uh, get up and shake my booty. I was gonna say, which... I feel like get up and shake my booty is like a good, yeah. Okay. I went to danger oh my god this is the best question pick a val kilmer question. doc holiday from tombstone batman <laughs> from batman forever chris shaherless from <gasps> oh that's right uh, jim morrison from the doors jim morrison from the doors i'm sorry but yeah i gotta go for a batman a batman for batman forever it was not a good film but i do enjoy him well in uh, jim morrison i feel like <laughs> Totally ridiculous, but also good. But he looked just like him. Unbelievable. He was Jim Morrison. He channeled it. Um, when working <laughs> with a team on a project. Oh, this is totally like all over the place. Oh, hello. Yeah. Um, you prefer to call the shots or follow my teammates lead. I see. Definitely follow going. my teammates lead. <laughs> okay. I am um, call <laughs> the shots. Yeah. Nice. We'd be good in a team, I think. Exactly. Oh, pick a color is oh. the next question. Red, blue, pink, or silver? Oh, interesting. Or black? Oh, black. Oh. Um, I'm going to go blue. Hmm. I'll go silver. It's kind of a nice, like, Eva Klein blue, so I'm going to go with Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good blue. Oh. Oh, I wish... Okay, so I'm interviewing Bernadette, who we also met at Skagestron. Um, but this question is relevant to um, our conversation, which would be probably next in the Amazing. episode list. Um, do you have a fear of flying? No, I'm fine with um, 
I love flying. It's actually. no, I'm fine with it. I love flying. It makes me a little uneasy, but I manage. Yes, I'm terrified. Uh, well, after having met Bernadette, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me a little uneasy, but I manage. And, Fair enough. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love flying. I do occasionally get anxiety about it, but not all yeah. the time. All right. In life, making mistakes is a good thing. It means I'm pushing my boundaries. Inevitable, but something to be avoided. <laughs> Oh my God. Someone's so really sad. wound up tight here. Like, or really, like hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, definitely making mistakes is the best thing you can do. That's the only way you can learn anything. Totally. It means you're in the danger zone and not just a comfort zone. I think these are all too neutral. Um, but oh, yeah. I will say a good thing because theoretically, I believe that it is a good thing. I just hate making mistakes. Well, you can't you can't move forward unless you move out of your comfort zone. No, it's that's something I learned true. as a ski ski instructor. I guess like if if my guests didn't sometimes take a tumble, it means they didn't push themselves enough. Aww. At least that's that's what I told them. Like it's okay, I can crash. Well, and that's what they always say in yoga too. They're like, oh, if yeah. you don't fall over, it means you're not working hard enough. Oh, so well, okay. Go. Oh, this is a tough one. Pick a Tom this Cruise a movie. One. Jerry Maguire, A Few Good Men, Risky Business, Mission Impossible, or Rain Man. Oh, my oh. God. Um, you know what? I enjoyed all of those films. And I'd also like to just disclaimer, I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. Like, I just yeah. want to say this. I know he's bonkers. I'm, I don't really enjoy him that much, but I do enjoy all of these films. Yeah, they're all really um, good. I would say Risky Business is like the purest, that's a nice uncut yeah. Tom Cruise, you know, where like, um, it just, it's like his original, like the thing that got him into Hollywood. Cause yeah. he's just like so charismatic and like kind of self-confident. Was that the bartending film? Um, it was the one where he's like running around as an underwear. Oh think, yeah, yeah. I think he's Cocktail like is the one, the bartending one. Oh my God, this is so hard. Actually, you know what? I did just rewatch Mission Impossible, the first one yeah. by Brian De Palma. Oh. And I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great spy film and Sean <laughs> Reno is in it and he's hilarious. So I'm going to go with Mission Impossible. Okay, awesome. I would also, as a backup, do A Few Good Men. That's a good one. That was well. a pretty epic movie. Super good film. Okay. Oh, I love the last question. Uh, okay. Time for some beach volleyball. What's your specialty? Setting, <laughs> spiking, blocking, digging. I'll just watch things. Hello. What about serving? What about high-fiving your teammates sweatily? What about yeah, grabbing what butts about... and slapping skins? <laughs> no. What about taking names, kicking ass? Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What about serving? Yeah. Which one's serving in this spiking setting? Yeah, I want to do serving. It's none of these. Um, I would say digging. What's what's digging? It's when you kind of like hit the ground and like put your hand under something or you're kind of like you're bumping, but in a way that means you're like, oh. like flying into the what, sand what? and very dramatic. Ah, that's the one where you, where you fly into the air, the, into yeah, the sand, yeah, you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, making like a last effort. Okay, I like yeah. that one too. I'll go for digging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, submit. Oh my God, Let's see. the suspense is killing me. <gasps> Calculating result. Come on. Oh, okay, click internet. to get your result. Wait, start another survey? Oh my God. What? 
get result. Oh this no, cleaning totally... up. What does this mean? Analyzing responses. You are Mike Viper Metcalf, and that. Oh, I love it. I'm the I'm the guy who's who's basically like um, a natural leader. You have a passion for seeing Wait, others grow and succeed. Oh my God, you are Maverick. Really? Wait, which one did you get? <laughs> I got Viper. Oh my God, Viper. I'm basically Viper. the guy who's like, I'm the teacher or the the headmaster of the oh, is Top Gun school, Tom I guess. Oh, is that Tom Skerritt? <laughs> yeah, it's Tom Skerritt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It is. <laughs> I love oh, it. <laughs> I would not have chosen that for you, honestly. But Yeah, if, you know what? Me neither. But my answers were also kind of all over the place. If so. you're happy, then I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah, it's fine because he's he's supportive. You know, he's it's a, true. He sees that Maverick is a hot mess. Like, yeah, he's, that's uh, actually not true. Not I'm saying you're a hot mess. <laughs> and then he finally also way too late in the film tells him about his dad. Like he sees this young man having total daddy issues. Oh, that's why yeah. he can't perform well. And then he ends. You know, he waits to the end of the film. It's like actually, Maverick, your dad was a bloody war hero. And it's like. What? Why didn't you tell this never poor knew. man before that I flew with him back in wherever? And I'm like, oh my God, you could have said this in the beginning of the movie. Then maybe Maverick would have been more well balanced and been able to perform. Oh my God, I just realized something. What if like that is the underlying thing, and he's actually looking for a dad? And so when Kelly oh, McGillis like puts on her drag like you know, <gasps> outfit, he's like, "Are you my dad?" And then like, boom. I mean, I think we can all agree that Maverick has 100% daddy issues, yes. which is also why it destroys him so much that Goose, you know, passes, spoiler yeah. alert. Um, oh, yeah. And, and that's why his, his masculinity is so frail the entire time. He can't handle Ice, like, you know, cussing him out and being like, Maverick, you're dangerous because... Right. You know, he's never had a dad tell him how to act and stuff. Yeah, total total daddy issues, Maverick, yeah. sorry. Well. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, any uh, last like things that you'd like to promote or things that people can kind of keep a lookout for in the next couple months or? Um, no, I, I mean, as you know, I'm building, building my own little brand. I'm building um, my production company. I've jumped out into the real world as a producer. And I hope that my company, which is called Bella Tola Films, will be a safe haven for any film director out there with an out, you know, crazy idea that they would like to spar about. So, you know, you can, I'm building my website, I'm building a little portfolio. Um, what can you look forward to? I don't know, I guess a bunch of small things first. I'm yeah. trying to finalize a lot of short films and cool. uh, yeah, that's what people can see from me. I hope one day you can follow me on Instagram. <laughs> Bella Tula Films, that's just the Instagram handle. Cool. Two L's, one L. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely delightful. And um, I will, um, I guess, say goodbye for now. Oh, yeah. This was fun. <laughs> Likewise. Um, okay, so, and done. <laughs>
and would love any feedback that you may have, um, feel free to email me at nina at ninaarnett.co in show notes. Um, you can find us as always on Spotify. I will be releasing episodes every Thursday. Um, and eventually I'm going to get on Apple. I had some drama with my AOL account that I will not go into, but yes, it was blocked. And yes, they wanted me to pay to change my password. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, both Sarah underscore Tebow and Nina underscore times four, um, Arnett, both in show notes. Um, you can subscribe to the mailing list. You can follow on Spotify. You can just do none of these things and hopefully you will listen to more episodes. Anyway, um, thank you so much and I look forward to talking to you next time. Bye.